Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. A founder on the night of fire and noise Wild bells rang in a wild sky I knew from that moment on that I'd And welcome back to the Soundtrack to a Life, the show where people talk about goth acts from the 90s. Among other things, but this month's we're going in heavy on goth acts from the 90s. Tim is with me here today. Hey Tim, tell everybody about yourself. Hello, uh, my name is Timothy Yurkowski. I'm... Currently, the director event technology for some hotels in the northeast of Calgary, setting up all of their audio-visual equipment, you know, for conferences and stuff. I mix music for bands. I like to record. I've been playing guitar for a while. And I think I've known Chris now for over 10 years. That seems it, yeah. Yeah, about that. So um, we're going to talk about a couple of discs here that I think we both really needed to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, specifically, Tim and I are here today talking about Nick Cave's 1994 album, Let Love In. And then there was Nick Cave. What can be said about the man? He's been in the music industry 40 years, and yet somehow has managed to hold himself perpetually apart from it. He helped build a genre, then walked away from that genre once it no longer served him, to help build another and, 10 years later, walk away from that, to cut a long, strange, winding path of his own. Which suits him. He's a man without a scene because he's a man who's never seen the need for one. If he wants to do a punk record, he will. If he wants to sit down at a piano, he will. He will make you howl with rage, or he will make you weep, and he's made it more than clear that you don't have the right to ask him which he intends to do. He's Nick fucking Cave, and he does what he likes. This attitude toward pop isn't for everyone. Pop is what it is due to its ability to connect with a mass audience. An artist that deliberately eschews any sort of effort toward mass communication is going to put out a lot more people than it's going to bring in. But the people who are brought in are going to love this music with a passion and commitment, are going to follow this artist to hell and back. And if anyone deserves that level of devotion, it's Nick Cave. He's a god, after all. He's a man. He's a ghost. He's a guru. Let Love In benefits from being the first Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds album I ever owned, on a shitty cassette bought from Recordland after hearing them played at 1 in the morning on CJSW. And it hit me like a bomb. It's one thing to do something better than anyone else in the world. It's another to do something that literally no one else in the world has even thought to try. Heavy, dark, ponderous, and majestic. The songs here loom over you. Overpower you. They demand that you kneel in supplication before them. And you feel you have no right to argue the matter. They carry a meaningful weight to them. A grandeur that was missing from a lot of 90s alternative rock. They were subtle in a world of spittle. Grace in a world of wrath. I've since bought everything he's released, and everything he's released carries a similar sense of depth and importance, but you can only have a first time once, and by the second Nick Cave record I listened to, I'd already heard Let Love In, and had some sense of what I was getting into, whereas this caught me completely by surprise. And what an album to be surprised by, because while there are a number of Nick Cave albums that could be qualified as his finest, this is the one that comes forth most fully formed, most unified in sound and theme. The one where he comes across with the greatest sense of purpose, of self, of the statement he intends to make. This is the sound of a man at the height of his powers who's realized he has no interest in building an empire, carving out a kingdom, and ruling over a cadre of devoted, like-minded followers. And I love him for that. So, Tim, you'd never heard Let Love In by Nick Cave, and now you have. Tell me, what do you think? 
Well, right off the bat, when you get that old-timey piano yeah, yeah. in there with the garish, off-key kind of sounds that are, are happening, it really... I'm getting goose pimples right now only because it's something I liked but was uncomfortable with. Yeah, like it's all very slowed down in minor key. Yeah. Let Love In is an incredibly effective introduction to the album. And then to actually listen through all the songs, and personally, I've got to say this right off the bat, I'm not the type of person who knows what song names are or what what's the title of track number four. I like always have listened to my CDs or my records kind of straight through and somebody will be like, well, what's this song? And I'm like, I don't know. It comes on. But this was a story. He had a deliberate beginning, told the story through and had that ending about just his relationship with this lady or, or man, could have been. Whoever that love interest is in this particular album, it's a story that's carried through from beginning to end. Yeah, it's really there to teach you a lesson about love that someday you will find love, and when you do, it will be horrible. Love is a terrifying specter over the course of this album, and while there are a lot of songs about love, that's usually not the angle they take with it. No, no, it's always the, the rainbows and butterflies and all that happy honeymoon phase where this is like, till death do you part, to the point where there's a song specifically saying that the devil is, is around and ready to take this away from you at any moment. Yeah. It does not let up. Like, it crashes right in. Do You Love Me, for a song that is so downbeat, commands an enormous amount of attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's asking you if you love him, but he... Despite would... all the flaws, yeah. despite all the cracks, you know, again, in a time, too, where, you know, I don't know, because I, I didn't read any of the leaflets or anything. I just listened to the songs. But if there's, like, spousal abuse or some sort of trauma or even... Even something that makes a perfect love no longer perfect and becomes imperfect and what that loss is like. It's right there, right in the beginning. Yeah, right from the get-go. Uh, he wants you to love him. He also you kind of wants you to fear him, and you kind of wind up doing both. Yeah, you get a little bit of that kidnapped, what is it, Stockholm Syndrome with it. Yeah. Because you're uncomfortable, yet you can't leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then two songs later, uh, Loverman goes, Oh, you thought that was menacing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here is some terrifying love for you. See, here you are with the album album names, and like I said, I just put it on and let it play through, so... Yeah, it's more about impressions for you. Yeah. I do that a lot with records as well. This one, I have heard decontextualized in other places often enough, and just, it's my 500th listen through, rather than my first. Well, what was amazing is I was watching some something on TV, and... I heard a song, it wasn't from this album, but I'm like, that sounds like Nick Cave. Yeah. That has to be Nick Cave, and sure enough, it was. Yeah, Nick Cave soundtracks the shit out of things. Yeah. Red Right Hand, specifically, gets used everywhere. I have in my notes here, Red Right Hand was on the soundtrack to Dumb and Dumber, The X-Files, the first three Scream films, Box of Moonlight, Hellboy, which was like a decade after this record came out. It's currently the theme song for Peaky Blinders, and that's two that's decades. That's where it was, because I, I just started watching Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. Yeah, it's such a good show. <laughs> Welcome to our new Peaky Blinders <laughs> podcast, because I definitely just finished watching four seasons of it. <laughs> that show is phenomenal. It's off the hook. Like, just so good. And just providing a lot of work for literary 90s goth acts. That's fair. Like, 
Here's some uh, Nick Cave for you. Here's Nick Cave being covered. We're going to throw a PJ Harvey song in here. <laughs> uh, we're going to get a Tom Waits number. Yep. Just everything yeah. that you would want on your show if you are a scene kid on his day off in 1998. Like, it was literally written for our age group, I yeah. think. Like, it, it's just like, it, I watched one episode. It took me a long time because it was really probably a month and a half ago that I finally went, okay, I'm into this, and I think I'm only halfway through season two. First episode, I'm like, yes, this is great. Guy's just riding his horse through, and everybody's like, something bad's going to happen like, just because this guy's riding through town? Like, what? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everybody's peeking through windows and looking outdoors. <laughs> and, like, the soundtrack is wildly inappropriate to the period, right. but also it's perfect. Yes. Yeah, to the period. Exactly. Like, it is everything you could want. Yep. And also probably made a couple or three mortgage payments on Nick Cave's house. <laughs> yeah, for those royalties. Yeah. Like it's so weird. should we like, uh, steer back to the album here a little bit? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, you've heard the show. We're tangential as hell up in here. Anybody who was put off by that has already stopped listening. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it gets used in every fucking soundtrack. And it makes sense because the song is, I want to say it's the Hammond organ. Oh, I, I probably um, with the world that's selling world it. Work. Yeah, yeah, like it sounds weirdly disjointed from time, but also timeless, and it's really moody and atmospheric. So if you want to soundtrack yeah, something, Leslie, it's got the Leslie spin in it. Yeah, if you want to soundtrack something moody and atmospheric, or Dumb and Dumber for some reason, I have that album, and I never once put the two together. Like that was something that was on my playlist when I was in grade nine. Oh yeah, consistently that Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. I actually was able to mix a song for the guy who did that. All the whiny, whiny girls are now rolling, but don't. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he played at the Westin, and I got to mix for him, and so that was kind of fun. <laughs> that seems fun. <laughs> it was a fun time. He was mad because I didn't have him subs for him, so I got subs, brought them in, and then he was happy. So I was like, okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But unspeakably dark tune to include. Not that I don't want something unspeakably dark in a comedy. I... Yeah, I mean, that kind of is right behind you, over your left shoulder, everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, Nick Cave is behind you, looming over you. He's six foot two. Yeah. He's, I want to say, 70 pounds. Oh, he's dressed like a Southern Baptist I mean, preacher, the, if you and he cover, loves you whether you like it or it, not. He's looking straight up in the air. With no shirt on, bottom of the album is just his nipples, and it's really the most stringy, heroinist, attic frame you could ever imagine. And the longest neck, like giraffe neck for sure, and bright red hair. Yeah. Like, it almost looks like it would be Bowie if Bowie was not good looking. <laughs> I think Nick Cave is good looking. Well, okay, but I don't like guys, right? So yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Bowie is good looking enough that the fact that you don't like guys becomes irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. No, obviously I still would, just for the story. <laughs> the uh, it's all pink, like the pink, pinky background and pinky blinders again. But yep. yeah, it's it's got that hue of just blood and and smear. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a cool cover. He's got interesting covers. A lot of the time, it's minimalist. It's just. Um, himself against some kind of stark background. Visually, he is an artist who lets the music that he's making speak for itself. You're not going to go to a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds show, I would imagine, expecting to see a lot of lights and explosions in the way that you would. But, I mean, it works for him. He's a man at a piano. Another interesting thing about Red Right Hand getting used for everything that I found while 
quickly Wikipedia searching things. Given how many things that it's soundtracked, it is interesting to me that it only hit uh, number 81 in the UK singles chart and number 62 in Australia, and so far as I can tell, did not chart elsewhere. Wow. Like, very small impact when it came out, enormous cultural footprint as years go by, and it grows and grows in people's esteem. Well, the only reason I even knew the Nick Cave name was there was, back in the Napster days, there was this mashup with uh, Green Day, Nick Cave, and the Tea Party on one song, and it was one track that I downloaded. Can't remember the name of the track, and there wasn't a lot of tracks. I, I really, really support artists yeah. buying music, so I pretty much have two CDs worth with like 120 songs that I really actually downloaded from Napster Days. And this Nick Cave remake, mashup mix, was one of them. And that's why it kind of popped up when I was looking at your list. I was like, I've never actually heard of them other than that one track. It's been on my PC probably since 1999, 2000. And so... Sure, let's hear it. And then I was like kind of blown away. It's like, whoa, thank you, Chris, for exposing me to this because it was not on my radar when I was in grade 10 and grade 11 at all. And like you said, it wasn't charted in Canada. There was never much music because that was how we got our music. Like yep. live on much and pretty much was where I went to. And that's how we watch concerts because I didn't afford concert tickets and stuff like that. But if it wasn't on much, I didn't know about it. Yeah, and this is... a. Uh artist that kind of deliberately shies away from that kind of spotlight. He's not making radio music. He's intentionally staying as far away from that as he can. A year after this, he had his closest thing to a hit, Where the Wild Roses Grow. He did a duet with Kylie Minogue. Okay. Where he kills her at the end. Oh. And then he put it on an album, Murder Ballads, where every song is a duet with somebody. And someone gets murdered at the end. Well then. That was his attempt at a mainstream crossover type situation. Okay. And it was the other acts that made it mainstream, not him. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> Kylie at the time was one of the biggest yeah. uh, stars in the world. Absolutely. Taking a break from doing disco music. Mm -hmm. Which, like, I have a lot of time for Kylie doing disco music. Kylie will eventually show up on this show. But it's a weird fit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the result is exactly as good as you would expect. Fair enough. I truly believe, for the record, that while it would be inappropriate to play the Nick Cave song Lay Me Low at your actual funeral, that that would still be funny. Yeah, it would be funny. <laughs> kind of like, well, the most recent news was that guy who basically had a recording in his thing and said, I'm not dead. Yeah, <laughs> Let me out. That's quite good. Good for that guy. Fuck with people at a funeral. Yeah. Which doesn't sound like it's about a Nick Cave record, but fuck with people at a funeral is a pretty Nick Cave sentiment, so I'm standing by it. Yeah, and you probably could email him that, and he'll write an album with that cover. That yeah, why not? <laughs> and, like, Lay Me Low is a perfect way to close a record. Like, this record starts and ends incredibly strong. Um, I know that Lay Me Low is technically not the last track. The last track... Was well, Do You a, Love Me Part 2? Yeah. Is, it, is that right? Yeah. Because, again, I'm just yes, going it is. Yes, it is. The YouTube album list from the remastered 2011 version is yep. what I listened to. So, just so we're clear. Yeah, I just put on the playlist and ran it through. and Yeah, the actual last track is the um, slowed down version of Do You Love Me. Yeah. Uh, but it feels that feels bonus tracky to me. Okay. And Lay Me Low feels like the real end. Yeah, okay. yeah. Like, yeah. this is how the album has wound itself to a conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah. 
They'll interview my teachers who will say I was one of God's sorrier creatures. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. He, you'll be surprised to hear, has never considered himself goth. You know, in a way, I could see that. Because I think goth is probably more of that rocky emo yeah. age group. Where this is older to me. Like, it has that older tones. And how I started off with that old-timey piano. You feel like you're in a saloon, which is why it fits with Pinky Blinders, too. Because of that setting. That's the tonal um, yeah. notes that I'm getting out of it. You know, with that, that timbre. Yeah, he's, he's more, more in the same school as, like, a Leonard Cohen or a Tom Waits. I would say so. Or, like, uh, Scott Walker or a Johnny it's Cash. It's that storyteller with that lament behind yeah. it absolute just yeah you know i'm i'm wishing for better better's not coming feel my pain feel my pain some more <laughs> but i would say that leonard cohen was goth yeah i mean i think so i have a wider net for goth than most people that's fair leonard cohen's pretty goth His... and that's it and then that's if you take the goth more as opposed to like the fashion and the style and you really look at it as about darkness and yeah. the macabre and like the, the Edgar Allan Poe-ish feel of, of what the storytelling is. Yeah. I mean, like, granted, a lot of these artists were working before goth was a thing, but Iggy Pop's first record came out in the 1960s, and no one would argue that he's not punk. That's fair. Yeah. You throw it in. He's yeah. one of the formative artists writing songs about their own funerals. His previous project to this, The Birthday Party was kind of more of a, like his first band, Nick Caves, not Leonard Cohen's, was kind of a clattery, no-wave type, uh, much more aggressive punk act. Okay. That I sometimes enjoy, but I have enough punk acts in my diet. Well, you have a lot of punk acts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> not even you mean enough, but it's like, if there's a new one, I need it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that seems like the Christmas <laughs> Frequently. <laughs> but like, I don't know. If I want to listen to Nick Cave... You don't go don't, to that album. Yeah, I don't need to hear him rocking out. Yeah. I got a lot of acts that can rock out. No one can do this. That's fair. Like, these are songs that'll haunt your dreams. They are. And that that's the, the, that uncomfortable... Why am I liking this? This is this is making me squirm, but I can't stop yeah. listening kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah, and just uh, like a phenomenal way around a turn of phrase as well. Like, just to quote random examples... She was given to me to put things right, and I stacked all my accomplishments beside her. Still, I seemed so obsolete and small, I found God and all his devils inside her. In my bed, she cast the blizzard out. A mock sun blazed upon her head. So completely filled with light she was. Her shadow fanged and hairy and mad. Our love lines grew hopelessly tangled, and the bells in the chapel went jingle jangle. Do you love me? Like, what is even happening? Far worse to be love's lover than the lover love has scorned is an objectively dope line. Yeah. Uh, it won't surprise me, you to learn, for an artist this literary, that he's also published books of essays and poetry and a couple of novels yeah. and has written a play. I would not be surprised. Again, that that's why we like it, because the wordsmith that is coming through this album keeps you engaged and wanting for more. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't read a lot of his work. I read um, And the Ass Saw the Angel, and that was very good. I should probably read more of his books. It sounds like both of us might actually do that and go down this rabbit hole that, that is Nick Cave and, and all of his darkness. Yeah. He's got so much darkness. <laughs> Arguably too much. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he knows what he likes to do. Yep. So released on Mute Records, 
which I don't usually shout out the record label. Okay. Um, because I don't usually care. But Mute is kind of a fun label. And where are they out of? Uh, they're out of the UK. Okay. They had Nick Cave on them in the 80s. They had uh, Depeche Mode, Yazoo, Erasure, Nitzer Ebb, Goldfrap most recently. Craftworks released a bunch of things through them. Just like really iconic, slightly darker than you would expect sorts of bands, which is fun. Like they know their brand. And Nick Cave is Australian? That's Nick Cave is Australian. That yep. is correct? That okay. is correct. That could be even just part of why... We didn't get a lot of exposure. Like, how did you find out about them? And to figure that you wanted to go to Record Land and get that tape and listen to it. Because it was their first, so... There was people listening to our first Carter USM episode. Because you had... Oh, sorry. We'll you did say that. CJSW played the yeah. track. People who listened to our first Carter USM episode will remember this. Uh, there was a DJ on CJSW from the, like, midnight to 2 a.m. block who played a weird... UK-based indie bands exclusively. Okay. And she informed my musical taste probably more than any other human being in the world. Mm-hmm. So I hope she's out there doing well. I owe and her. And I a do lot. remember that now that you're saying it again. Yeah. And yeah. Yes. I do owe yeah. her a lot. Yeah. Out there hooking me up every, I want to say, Saturday and again, night. Yeah. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that CJSW is our university station here in Calgary. I was a cab driver in Canmore, yep. and I would put on CJSW in the middle of the night so that as people came out of the, the pubs and the, the nightclubs, they were basically getting a house show in my cab. Nice. <laughs> he got me lots of tips. Yeah, <laughs> And it was because of that radio station. Like, yep. you put it on, and there was just that bass, and yep. everyone was like, whoa, this is awesome. And they're all drunk, and then they give me money. So yeah. it's great. <laughs> that seems perfect. But yeah, no, CJSW on Saturday, and then on Sunday go to Record Lounge and buy the two or three things that most impressed me for like four bucks a cassette. Yeah, because nobody else is buying it. And the fact they at had the time, it, did you, the fact they had it was also a testament to Record Land and how special that little gem is in our city. Yeah, no, that place is delightful. Yeah. I will absolutely still go there and browse for like two hours yeah. before finally buying something out of a sense of obligation. Because, do you know what? You can't just browse and then shop on Amazon, dick. <laughs> That's to anyone out there named Richard. <laughs> who browses for records and then shops on Amazon, I guess. That's fair. Support your local businesses. Yeah, absolutely. We're all really trying hard. And those big box stores, I must admit, they make my life really, really easy. As an audio engineer, because if I need it, I can get it in the next day. And unfortunately, some of our local music stores don't have that same sense of urgency. No, they not. <laughs> or the same network of uh, suppliers. That's fair. But yeah, no, uh, most of my taste in weird 90s indie bands came from her. Came from her. Until I started bullying bookstores into importing NME for me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I was surprised that enough filtered down to Recordland. Mm-hmm. Um, it did sell-ish for the kind. And I guess in the 90s, we were spending a lot more money on physical media. Oh, absolutely. Touch it, hold it, open up the leaflet, know the artists a little bit. I'm still of the uh, touch and hold. I think it's really, really neat that we do have a new generation that are buying records and playing vinyl and, and listening to an album for an album as opposed to the instantaneous single. That, to me, gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah. Um, a mix of Spotify and vinyl feels better than the 
iTunes era. And I never ever once subscribed to the iTunes era, and now I'm on the... I subscribe to YouTube Premium. Yep. And that allows me to get that full album experience without the commercials. So yep. it's, it, for me, it, I like it. Yeah, I had a robust iTunes library because at the time I was moving cities every three months mm-hmm. and did not want to pack. Yeah. What do you mean? If Music I... is, and, and vinyl specifically is heavy. And they don't make milk crates that fit records anymore. <laughs> Purposefully, because we were all stealing them for our record collection. Damn you, milk crates! <laughs> Dairyland! Why? Uh, a quarter of an inch is so important to us! <laughs> I guess, yeah. Yeah, we joke about it because uh, somebody will ask me, Hey, can I take that milk crate? I'm like, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Dairyland. <laughs> yep. So That's a fair point. <laughs> Their entire business model is being robbed. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, Nick Cave is actually on paper having greater success now than he did at the time. Oh, okay. This went to number 12 in the UK chart and eventually went silver for sales of 60,000 copies. Didn't chart in the US at all, and Wikipedia has no data for Canada, but I presume that it didn't chart. This is more of a sleeper hit type audience where a small number of people bought it when it came out, but probably a comparable number of people bought this this year. As they try to figure in their... Uh, well, and that's it. Out. If you hear it on a show and you like the song and you look it up and it's like, oh, okay, this is from 1994, really? Yeah. And I've never heard of this? Turns out, this guy's got 40 years worth of records. Yeah, and there's that's a lot of listening if you really want to delve deep. Yeah, and none of the uh, none of the singles went higher than number 60 anywhere. But his last four albums all hit the top five in both the UK and in Australia. Well, what's neat too is enough creative people heard it to be able to include it in these new mediums and these shows yeah. to to allow this artist to still be able to have a lasting impression. That's that's what anybody wants is to be remembered. Yeah. And like this is we le- are now this is legacy music. We're now twenty five years away from when this album came out. And here we are having a poignant conversation about and getting goose pimples again about it as if it was released yesterday. Yeah. Right? Which it could have been. Yeah. Or in the It absolutely hundred percent could have been released yesterday. It would actually do well, I think. Absolutely. It would find an audience. I mean, it does. And Nick Cave is... It's interesting to me the way that album charts are calculated now really benefits artists like Nick Cave. Right, because it's by Uh, listens and downloads or views or... It's actual consumption on the date, really. And Nick Cave's audience is a little bit older and is fanatical. So you know all of them are going to show up Tool broke the internet. Buy it on physical Tool broke media. The internet. Yes, they did. Every single Taylor Swift fan was like, who the hell is Tool? Why is Taylor Swift not number one? It's because us 40-year-olds got up yep. and went and watched our YouTube videos and consumed that crap in the millions within a second because we were waiting for Tool for so long. Everybody loves <laughs> Tool. I still have to listen to Tool. You haven't heard the new album yet? I haven't heard the new album yet. I did it on the day. I did it yeah. on the day. I, we, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I was like... <laughs> When Nick uh, Cave's last record came out this year, I took the day off. I'm like, all right, we're going to listen to this 20 times. <laughs> yeah. Live in it for a little while. The thing about Tool was it sounded like the old Tool. Yeah. And it, it, there wasn't a lot of change. And yeah. actually, for me, it sounded more like a Perfect Circle album than a Tool album. Does that make sense? I think so. Because like you said, you haven't heard it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Sorry uh, to break. Yeah, maybe. That's fine. Be. I'm going to come up with opinions. I'm talking to Mike about it on here later. So... Probably in the next batch of recording sessions. Nice. And yeah, you're definitely dedicated for how much you're doing this show. And it took us a long time to finally get to be sitting in the same yeah. room based on our schedules. I put a... Yeah. And also, I overscheduled guests. 
I put out a call, anybody who wants to be on the show, etc., etc. Yeah, et cetera. and then all of a sudden, blam! Yeah, everybody <laughs> came on. Meanwhile, I got 12 guests on a year. Yeah. <laughs> so, some of the people were getting, well, I'll see you in six months. Yeah, and I, I, I was just patient. That was good, actually, because we were both busy. So, both of us were going to record this on Saturday night? Or uh, Sunday night? Saturday. Yeah, Saturday night. I worked 18 hours that day. <laughs> and I worked 15. <laughs> so we're both making very, very poor life choices to try to put this podcast on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I stand by it. It's worth it. It totally People worth need it. to listen to Let Love In by Nick Cave so we were and gonna, the rest of his catalog we also. Literally going to be showing up in your apartment at 1 a.m. to have this kind of conversation. It would have been a much different conversation. It would have been a much time. tireder conversation <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so. Today, we did it on a day that Chris actually has the day off from work, and I had an okay schedule, and it's in the evening. We're not both running ragged. Yep, yep. <laughs> it does better for your podcast, for sure. Yeah, it's a much better experience all around. I was in a good mood by the time I was done work, but I was not coming up with coherent sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Nor should I. But I... one day, we may need to... Do one just for our listeners to see what can happen when you don't do things to the best of your ability and make poor life choices. I mean, <laughs> I keep threatening to get three or four people in. On one day? Uh, on a day, get drunk and talk about movie soundtracks. Hey, I, I'm in for that. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'm totally in for that. That's where, when I did the asking you about him being in Australia, because because of the time he came out, there's definitely, I feel a lot of that Tom Waits and Leonard Cohen influence, but I don't know what his influences were. So if he's making this type of music independently without having that exposure to some of the artists that we know already and have grown up with, that to me is pretty amazing. If they're they're siloed, but they're having that same kind of sound and that effect yeah. on people. He had already, by the time he started recording music with the Bad Seeds, uh, had been touring and working with the birthday party for... A number of years like that was one of the formative Australian punk bands from when punk hit Australia in the late 70s and they again were a lot more aggressive and a lot more abrasive and a lot mm -hmm. more anti-music he didn't tone it down like this in the same way until later in his life which is what happens later in your life yeah you do not jump into a mosh pit at 40 well you could Again, you're, poor life choices. You're going to feel gonna it, consequences. though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am always tempted to jump into a mosh pit, but I also know that my hideous body would break. You're also, when you're jumping into a mosh pit, is different than I am, because what is your height? Six, four, yeah, six, I'm six, five? I'm six, three and two something. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to throw some weight around a mosh pit. So even the greatest mosh pit sees Chris flying through the air with the greatest of ease and goes, what the fuck? Well, I guess this is how we die. <laughs> and yeah, this is a style of music that's a lot easier to age into. Absolutely. I am always interested in what punk musicians choose to do as they age, because being in the Sex Pistols at 60 makes you look like a ridiculous person. And also a little bit of a god, because, wow, you're still doing it. <laughs> right? That's true. <laughs> but like, in a lot of cases with the more iconic... But again, you 
I've even heard like you see the Dropkick Murphys now and it's not the same experience. You see some of these bands, it's it's just not the same as it was 20 years ago when they were actually pissing vinegar and going yeah. to fight you at the end of the show. Now they're really probably not going to punch you in the teeth at the end of their show. Yeah, like they're not, <laughs> they're not 21 and hungry anymore. It makes more sense to transition into a darkly symphonic album of piano ballads in Nick Cave's case, yeah. or a more traditionally blues-oriented rock sound in Paul Weller's case, or did you hear the last like three Joe Strummer records with the Mescaleros? You're going to hate me because I don't know who Joe Strummer is, so now that's next on my list. Dude from The Clash! Oh, okay. Yeah, say again, names and... Yeah. Yep. No. All right, I'm going to hook you up with a uh, record by a 50-year-old former member of The Clash. That'll be good. Because his second act is very satisfying musically. Awesome. No, I look forward to it. And that's the other part, too, because I didn't grow up in Calgary. I grew up in a very, very small town. So my musical influences were very, very small. Yeah. Like, again, much music. If it wasn't on much music, I was not exposed to it. Or if it wasn't on CJ, yeah. I wasn't exposed to it. Or, like, The Bear in Edmonton. So yeah. it's really amazing how the media we have access to really will define what we will end up liking. Because yeah. I really wasn't into that whole dance music scene that was coming through the early 90s and the mid-90s. I totally gravitated to the rock. And again, if it wasn't on 100.3 The Bear, it was probably not something I was going to find. Or if it wasn't on much music, it wasn't something I was going to find. Yeah. Gates were kept. There was a lot more gatekeeping in popular music than there is now. Whereas now, I can hear a song that's on a TV show. I can instantly go on Wikipedia, find out who the artist is, when the song was released, and listen to the album five minutes later, two minutes later, not even. Like, just, and boom. There it is. Oh, now I know what this is. I can choose to like it or I can choose to dislike it. I can choose to delve deep or I can choose to put it on the shelf for maybe some other time. It's a very, very different world in how we're consuming any of our media. Although, the argument can be made that... Um... Radio programmers or much music programmers have just been replaced in terms of gatekeeping your taste in music with Spotify algorithms. Uh, maybe. Because, again, I'm not on Spotify, so I don't know. Oh, you still physical media everything. I try to. And nice. then YouTube, like I said. So if I hear something I like, I'll go after it. If I go and see a live band, I'll go after it. And also, being in the music scene now, which I wasn't, you know, but I chose to later in my life to actually become involved. I'm getting to know that I actually like the small artists that aren't big yet probably a lot more than the commercial records. Frequently. They do the weirder stuff. Except for Billie Eilish. You'll have to tell me who that is. <laughs> oh, she does the weirder stuff. Yeah. But in, like, for some reason, a phenomenally commercial way. Okay. Yeah, it's like a high school goth girl doing a trip-hop record. So and explain trip-hop to me. Um, basically slowed-down beats, jazzy influence... Like a Portishead or a Tricky or a Massive Attack type of an influence. It's um, basically electronic. I'm saying okay with like deers yeah. in the headlights because yeah. I have no idea who any of those bands are. It's basically electronic chill-out music. Okay. But like deeply strange artist to have a number one hit is my point about Billie Eilish. Old Town Road was fucking strange as well. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard that song, so I know that song. Everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> it's the biggest hit in the history of pop. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, I think it ran for like... 19 weeks at number one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for something so simple, really, because it is very, very simple. Yeah, but he figured out how the music industry works first and how to exploit it best. And there you go. Um, and he was rewarded. And I, 
And I got immediately on board with being overcommitted to it being a number one hit because Stereo Gum uh, was publishing a weekly Old Town Road update how, of how long it's been at number one, yeah. how long it would go before it broke the record for the most weeks at number one. And, and then who was close to trying and then failing to beat it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and whose record they broke. Okay. So I got on board with, it's uh, an okay song. I don't understand why it's as big as it is. It has now been at number one for whatever, 12 weeks. That is one more week than Brian Adams. Everything I do, I do it for you. Oh, watch that guy take a loss. This is fun. I'll be back next week to that see who... <laughs> was the song that me and my wife walked down the aisle to. Oh, No, no, it was all for one and one for love. But similar that... tone. It was just, it happened to have... Um... Yeah, but of those two songs, yeah. one is much worse. Yeah. Which brings us to the end. Yeah, good. So, <laughs> needless Brian Adams bashing yeah. for you. Sorry, my overwhelmingly Canadian podcast audience. If you like Brian Adams, I'm going to end the show because that is how I end it, by asking three questions. You ever going to listen to Let Love In again? Yes. You going to explore the rest of Nick Cave's catalog? Yes. Nice. I am so glad. If you wanted a next step for him, his three previous to this, Henry's Dream, The Good Son, and Tender Prey, are all gorgeous atmospheric slices. And those are solos? Uh, Solo acts before the, the Bad Seed? The three albums with the Bad Seeds previous to this. Okay. Or if you want to go with a more solemn and haunting vibe, uh, No More Shall We Part and The Boatman's Call from the later 90s feature some fantastic songwriting. Alternately, his Grinderman side project, which is like a punk band that he formed but with members of the Bad Seeds. Oh, okay. Are incredibly fun. It's like a punk energy but with his current songwriting chops sprinkled in. He's in the middle of a really strong creative period right now. His last record, Ghost Teen, came out weeks ago so amazing timing for this little podcast yeah 100 percent. If, <laughs> if i were a better podcaster this would have come out the month that the new one came out yeah as it stands it'll probably wind up coming out in january yeah, that's, that's <laughs> and ghost fair. teen will be months old but it's still very good and everyone should listen to that as well basically what i'm saying is nick cave is good and there are no bad answers fair enough as far as what to listen to by him next and uh if you had to pick one track to close out the episode what would oh, you pick jingle jangle Jangling Jack? Yeah, yeah, Jangling Jack, yeah. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. Reviews are incredibly important because they help a podcast get out to a larger audience. Five-star reviews are always appreciated. Tim, do you got anything you want to plug? I'm not going to plug anything. I'm going to say thank you. It's been an honor to thank be you. on your podcast. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. I'm going to make you listen to Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Absolutely. So figure out what you want me to listen to. That'll be a fun time. Okay. We will be back in two weeks to talk about a different record, y'all. Bye. Bye.